0: As health and medical lawyers, unfortunately, a lot of our work is representing people who've had poor outcomes in our health system. In this episode of the Law Matters podcast, we're looking at new reforms and standards that have been introduced in the field of cosmetic surgery after some high profile class actions put the problems of the cosmetic surgery industry into plain view. We've spoken about cosmetic surgery in a previous podcast episode where we looked into the problems plaguing the industry and gave some insight into how to identify a reputable surgeon. We'll link to that in the show notes. This episode will take that conversation a little further by looking into the new reforms. Practice leader in health law at the firm, Rosemary Listing, will host this episode, and she's gonna be talking to New South Wales barrister, Nairi Watson, Nairi specialises in health and medical litigation, and she's also a registered nurse. In fact, she's been registered for 36 years. She's also the spokesperson for medical negligence and medical law with the Australian Lawyers Alliance. All of this makes her perfect to talk to about this important subject. I hope you get a lot out of this episode.
1: Hi, I'm Rosemary Listing. I'm practice leader in health law with Catherine Henry Lawyers and today we're talking about something I'm seeing in my work far too often, negligence in cosmetic surgery. Contrary to what social media may have us believe, cosmetic surgery is not just something for the rich and famous. Quite often it is the most vulnerable in our society who are at risk of engaging with a cosmetic surgeon who is not qualified or uses practices that endanger patients. There have been some promising changes in this space, but I wonder if it's enough. To talk about where we are at and where we should be heading, I'm speaking to Nairi Watson, a New South Wales nurse and barrister specialising in health and medical litigation. Nairi, welcome.
2: Nice to be talking to you, Rosie.
1: When it comes to your work in health and medical litigation, how much of that work is in the cosmetic plastic surgery space?
2: Uh, in preparation for for this conversation, I went back and had a look at my caseload over the years, and I could recognize that I constantly have at any one time at least one potentially more cases of uh, medical negligence litigation related to cosmetic surgery. And generally speaking, when those kind of cases, come to me, they're usually of a very serious nature. So um, it's something I see constantly. Uh, I also think given the exponential rise in cosmetic surgery across the board in Australia, the amount of uh, surgery that's been performed, um, that I don't consider that that's going to change anytime soon.
1: Hmm. Nari, of course, uh, preserving the identity of these cases, can you tell us some stories that were particularly confronting or memorable for you?
2: Yes, yeah, so I went back and, and um, had a had a look at some of the cases that I've litigated in recent times. Um, the one, probably one that stands out particularly, was a woman who had a, um, following large weight loss, had a, uh, she was told that she was going to be given a tummy tuck and her thighs would be fixed. Um, but what actually happened is that she developed a catastrophic infection with necrosis, the skin died, she became septic, she nearly died, um, and she was left with absolutely horrendous scarring throughout her torso and her thighs. And that the the end result left her extremely disfigured and really beyond any ability to have corrective surgery to fix it. That's at a particularly serious end where, where a person nearly died. But then there are other kinds of cases which are significant too. And it, its it, I should also hasten to say it's a very gendered area of litigation. Yes, men are having cosmetic surgery too, but the vast majority are female. So therefore it's going to follow that the most of the litigation is going to involve women. Another case that I can recall that was significant for the woman, although it in terms of the um, damage, it wasn't life-threatening, but she had this woman, relatively young woman, wanted um, a breast augmentation and the process, the, the surgeon accidentally cut the ducts to her mammary glands. So she was unable to breastfeed. She had been it was very important to her that she'd be able to breastfeed post surgery and she'd been assured that she would be able to do that. But in fact that couldn't happen. So uh, that was a very serious injury to her and particularly from a psychological point of view. Another case I can think of is a woman who had some uh, minor kind of skin condition on her nose. And that rather than doing a biopsy, the surgeon went ahead and did this very elaborate resection and a flat uh, graft, which really was kind of a very large large surgery when, in fact, if he had biopsied her nose, it would have been just found to be uh, normal tissue and she didn't need it excised at all. I've Another case of a woman who wanted to have a, she'd had, Uh, breast augmentation 15 years prior she asked she said she wanted to over the years um, gravity had had done its work and she wanted to have a breast lift the surgeon went ahead and did a breast lift but failed to notice that the 15 year old implants had ruptured and so he just went ahead and operated on her um, with the ruptured breast implants in place and after surgery, one of those implants made its way into her armpit. Um, so obviously she needed to have that surgery and have have it all removed. and the end result probably means that she can't have implants at all, so she's not very happy with that that outcome. So that's just a uh, kind of a small snapshot of some cases I've seen recently.
1: Thank you for sharing that with us, Nairi. Uh whilst they're confronting stories I think that our listeners will gain some value from understanding some of the things that can go wrong and perhaps that there's people out there that can help them with these experiences. So let's talk about how the industry is regulated and what types of reforms are in place in order to assist people from well, in order to prevent these types of injuries occurring, the new cosmetic surgery standards were put in place in 2023. These standards include the need for a referral from a GP along with a general health and psychological assessment. What do you think of these new standards?
2: Um, I I think that there's certainly a move in the right direction that particularly the psychological assessment My understanding, having spoken to cosmetic surgeons, is that what they're trying to do is to be able to identify people with body dysmorphia because those particular group of people are very likely to seek out cosmetic surgery and they're also very unlikely to be satisfied with the end result and will want to come back for more and more surgery. And they may also be a group that is likely to litigate on the basis that they're unhappy with the outcome. So I I think that that's a good move. Um, I think that all improving standards, any improvement on standards and guidelines is beneficial. Um, And I think it's going to remain to be seen what the net effect is going to be, because as you're aware, we have a three-year limitation period. And the cases that are already out there Um, are still going to be moving through the system because these changes only came into place last year. So I think it will take some years before we really know how much effect that they're going to have in terms of um, adverse outcomes and litigation. Nairi,
1: some websites use phrases like the mummy makeover. How dangerous is it to target one particular group and almost make it sound like this invasive surgery is something like going to a day spa?
2: I think it's highly problematic and specifically with the new guidelines that came in last year, those kind of words are supposed to no longer be used. So in preparation for this podcast, um, I did what I actually do on a fairly regular basis is have a look at what I'm finding on the internet um, in high target market areas uh, places like sydney the gold coast they're high volume areas for cosmetic surgery and i found that there are still uh, cosmetic surgeons that are using the term mummy makeover strictly speaking they are in breach of the guidelines if they're doing that they're also meant to remove any images uh, that i mean it used to be very very prevalent this has definitely changed in recent months in my view is the use of bikini models, lingerie models, um, to try and demonstrate what the outcome was going to look like, and in most cases they were extremely unrealistic about what anybody could hope to achieve uh, following surgery. So they were they were very misleading. By and large, most websites now have removed those kind of images, and I can see a tightening up of the language but there are still some outliers. There are still some websites where they're still referring to mummy makeovers. The ones that have actually specifically removed that uh, have kind of just adjusted their language. They're now calling it post-pregnancy surgery. So even though the colloquial language has been removed, it's still clear that they're targeting a market of women that after pregnancy, after childbirth, um, that your body needs to be you, you know you're, you're potentially going to want to consider cosmetic surgery to correct what you regard as deficiencies so I guess a technically it's an improvement the remove you know not using colloquial language anymore but um it's still clear that the tar- who the target market is and um those people will still be drawn to having surgery, I suspect.
1: Let's talk about the term surgeon. In September 2023, as part of the wider reforms by the Medical Board of Australia and the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, or APRA, this term was restricted to mean someone who had trained in surgery, ophthalmology, gynaecology or obstetrics. I think it's important to say that before then, some of the doctors who were calling themselves cosmetic surgeons were not surgeons at all. They've not done the training to become a surgeon. Rather, they had trained to be a GP or other skin specialist. Nairi, have you seen any real life impacts being made with this change yet?
2: Uh I, I would say it's difficult again, because it's still relatively new, it's going to be difficult to know until we get past the, you know, three-year limitation period. I have definitely, in years gone by, uh litigated people that call themselves cosmetic surgeons that were actually no better qualified than a GP and that there'd been very poor outcomes. So I think that restricting the use surgeon is definitely a move in the right direction. There is a group that I think remains a bit of a concern, which hasn't been captured properly by this um, regulation, which they are called podiatric surgeons. So they, they are... They're a rel- relatively small group um, of health professionals who've undertaken a, a training to treat specifically feet, and they call themselves surgeons. And I'm I have some concerns about the extent of their training. They're not they're not they don't fall under what we would consider the Typical pathway for a surgeon to train under the Royal Australian College of Surgeons or RACS. They're not; they don't fall under RACS. Um, and I believe that there are some examples of some poor outcomes. So somehow they've they've slipped through the net a bit, um, and it's going to be a, an area to to watch to see what happens in that particular space. But I think, by and large, to restrict the term the use of the word surgeon is definitely um, a good move because generally speaking, I believe that once a patient thinks that they're seeing somebody who calls themselves a surgeon, they believe that they've got a proper surgical training behind them. But previously, that wasn't the case. Virtually anybody could call themselves a surgeon. So um, it remains to be seen how much that changes litigation and safety. But again, any regulation that improves, um, that clarifies the language, that gives um, the public better information about what to expect, I think is definitely a step in the right direction.
1: So let's talk about serial offenders, which are surgeons or doctors who have treated a number of women in a similar way, and women have suffered similar types of complications these serial offenders that are known to people like you and I, do you think these reforms and standards go far enough to stop those who are known for their negligence?
2: Uh, I I don't think any of the the measures have done really gone anywhere to deal with the serial offenders. The the guideline changes that we've just been discussing uh, don't address this cohort at all. Uh, And I think that they are a significant problem. Um, I have dealt with serial offenders on uh, quite a few occasions, and I've actually done some research in this area, it is known statistically that once a doctor, a surgeon, if you like, has had one complaint, two complaints, that statistically the likelihood of them continuing to have more complaints made goes up over time. And it seems that in my experience, APRA seems to be really quite slow to act to deal with them, that you have to be a a fairly significant serial offender before APRA will actually take action and that there will be conditions put um, on their registration to limit uh, the way in which they can work. I think that there's another problem with serial offenders is that you and I may know how to uh, search APRA and find out what the conditions are on the registration of any particular medical practitioner, especially serial offenders. But if a member of the public, or a, a person who is contemplating having cosmetic surgery, put in, typed into Google the name of a doctor, if even if they have conditions on their registration, it will not come up and Google. It will not take them, it will not direct them to the APRA website. So they have no idea if a surgeon that they're planning to um, consult has restrictions on their practice or not, or has any history um, of problematic or adverse outcomes. Uh, It it gets worse too in that most times when when conditions are placed, they may be there for for two, possibly even three years, depends on how serious the breaches are, and then they disappear. So even if you go back to APRA after that time, you won't find any any history of any of the problems. So I think that the problem of serial offenders is not really been dealt with properly yet by APRA. I think that APRA is um, I'm assuming they they do their best, but they're a very big organization, quite unwieldy, and it takes some time, quite a lot of time, to act on. Um, notifications and complaints and I think that the, the the serial offender problem will continue on pretty much um unabated until they do something differently
1: and Nari, why don't these new regulations stop those serial offenders do you think
2: I'll I'll, ex- I'll explain it it's in my view it's because that they don't they are they fall into the category of rogue doctors and that no amount of no amount of guidelines or structure or rules put in place are really going to govern them. They, they, in their own minds, they op they they do what they do um, quite independently of what anybody thinks. Um, if, and I'm sure Rosie would have n- known there's characters like Dr. Lanza, uh, people whose behavior is really egregious and just so outside what is expected considered to be acceptable conduct, that they're not interested in guidelines, they they will just do what they want to do regardless um, and that they're essentially incompetent. Um, I encounter people who are just fundamentally incompetent and no amount of guidelines is ever really going to pull them into, into line. Mm. They're just a force all on their own until somebody tries to stop them.
1: And do you think that the regulator is doing enough
2: to... Well, that's what I was saying, that APRA is yep. slow. APRA is very slow. There's There's been some good research. There's even a, an Australian researcher, Marie Bismarck, if you're familiar with any of her work, where she actually looked, at, she went and did a retrospective study. She was able to access um, records out of insurance companies to look at offenders and it... It's a, it's a concerning what she was able to show that after one, if you've had one complaint, the chances of getting a second one go up. After the second one, it goes up. And she was reporting in her research people who had had up to 10 complaints who were still working. Now, these aren't all necessarily cosmetic surgeons, but they are people who who are really impervious to being told what to do what kind of reforms would you
1: like to see be put in place?
2: I believe that there are methods. It, it's called search engine optimization. It is it is IT tech uh, stuff. But I believe there are ways that where if I if I type in Doctor X into Google, that it would be able to link through to APRA. Um, I I believe that there are technical barriers to that currently that could be addressed. They May not be uh, terribly easy, but if you can Google a doctor's name and you can go straight to their website, or you can go to rate, it'll turn up rate MDs, or it'll take you to Facebook, or it'll take you to all kinds of places anywhere but APRA. Precisely what the technical requirements would be for that change to be made, but I've been told it is possible, uh, but yet there's not been any appetite to do it, and I don't, I, I can't answer why.
1: Okay. We work together at times to run medical negligence claims against offending cosmetic surgeons. It's a process we know well, but I know it can be intimidating for both legal teams and clients. I wonder if you could talk through that process a little.
2: I think it's primarily a daunting process to a potential client or a patient that's been experienced an adverse outcome. For for you and I, I don't think it's a daunting process or, or, or difficult because we understand this field of law. Generally speaking, the, these clients are quite traumatised. The nature of the injuries that they come with, particularly for women, um, generally I see in most instances psychological harm that comes along with a physical injury. Um, it can make it difficult for a person to even contemplate um, whether or not they have a claim or what to do about it. So they have to first go to a lawyer. The, the process is lengthy. Um, as you know, it can take, it's not unusual for it to take 18 months from the point of uh, connecting with a lawyer and finding out that you've got a case until um, a case is concluded. In most instances, instances, in my experience, the defendant will will deny wrongdoing, will deny liability. So the person has to go through quite a journey To get to a point where they may consider that they've achieved some kind of justice for this, you know, the problem that they've come with. So it's a it's a difficult thing for anybody to contemplate, and that's why it becomes very important that when people with um, who've been injured in the process of having cosmetic surgery that they find themselves with lawyers who are experienced in the field. Uh, because it's something that you really do need to know, the groundwork of how the law works, how how to guide somebody through the process, because it, the client needs to be cared for, uh, so that they don't actually, you know, receive more trauma. In my view, so having lawyers that actually understand that the process is really important, and. That they need to be able to be informed along the way, so that they understand what the steps are, and that they have their expectations managed, so that they are realistic. And um, if all of those things are in place, then I think that the process can have a good outcome for a client, and you know that that can help you know get some closure for whatever's happened to them.
1: How successful do you think the legal profession is in achieving some sort of justice at the moment?
2: Um, well, you know, following on from my previous comment, I, I think that it's quite... First of all, the way in which the lawyers work with the client I, I think is an important factor in how successful it is. Um, what The law is a blunt instrument. It can't restore a person to how they were before whatever went wrong happened. The only... Um, outcome that can be achieved is a financial one. And hopefully that can put a person in a position whereby they can at least have something corrective done if, it's, if that's what's required or if they need psychological treatment that they can undertake that. But there are limits to what the legal system can do. I think at the moment it's probably, there's not a lot more that could be done short of making it more difficult, I, and I don't see this. This I don't see any solution to this for for defendants to deny liability. I think that sometimes um, the insistence to of defendants to fight is unfortunate. But um, lawyers who work in the space are, are very familiar with that experience and generally know how to handle that. And as I said, if everything moves. In the way it should, I think that people can can get a good outcome uh, after something that's really you know been a very distressing experience.
1: Okay, and we'll finish on a really broad question. Just looking to the future, where do you think the industry
2: is heading? I expect to see, if anything, I, notwithstanding the the changes to the guidelines, I don't see really this changing a great deal in terms of volume mainly because it's a growing market it's getting bigger not smaller I've seen that in the years that I've been a barrister Um, it's just a burgeoning market Um, there's also cosmetic medicine where so injectables and so forth that's a growing space as well and more and more what as you said in the introduction this used to be the you know the the realm of people who who had a lot of money or, you know, celebrities. But now it's everybody. And also, um, it's as I said, it's a gendered market, especially skewed to females. And the market is getting younger and younger. Um, I think we can see social media as playing a role in that. Um, influencers are playing a role in that. All of the forces are driving volume up. It, it's a very lucrative area of medicine it, it, so that's it's going to attract practitioners into it for that reason too so um i don't actually see this as actually going away at all i in fact think it's probably going to the numbers of people are not going to change in fact they they may go up as more procedures are done
1: well look thanks so much for your time today nairi it's it's not a uh... A most positive note to end on but we're hopeful that as lawyers in this field we can deliver some sense of perhaps help victims to see what happened to them in a different light and reframe their experiences to realize that they weren't at fault for what happened to them so we just want to thank you very much for coming on the show today and we look forward to speaking to you in the future about your ongoing work in this field
2: you're very welcome
0: thank you I hope you got a lot out of this episode of Law Matters. Thank you to both Nairi Watson and my colleague Rosemary Listing for their time and expertise. I'm Catherine Henry from Catherine Henry Lawyers. And if you've been a victim of cosmetic surgery gone wrong and you'd like to take the matter further, please contact my team at Catherine Henry Lawyers. This podcast was produced by Pod and Penn Productions.